What do you think about when you think of Australia? For many people, it's the things that probably could kill you, from crocodiles and sharks to spiders and snakes. Early European colonists were terrified of snakes, and they brought with them all sorts of weird and scientifically, well, questionable treatments. Here at the University of Melbourne, the Medical History Museum tells the story of medicine with hundreds of strange and surprising objects. But it isn't always a story of success. I'm Angus Thompson, and this is Uncurated, a podcast from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Each episode, we take one object from the university's collections and look at the forgotten stories behind them. This week, an intricate little box which shows Western science grappling with a strange and often dangerous new land. And as Thomas Phillips discovered, the solutions were sometimes as dangerous as the cause itself. When I hear strychnine, I think of fictional murderers from contrived mystery novels. But in 19th century Australia, real-life doctors injected the deadly poison directly into the skin of their snake-bitten patients. What we have is a beautiful leather box which contains the syringe. And the syringe is the manner in which the snake bite remedy is delivered. That's Jackie Healy, the curator of Melbourne University's Medical History Museum. She's telling me about a snake bite remedy kit from 1892 in the museum's collection. But maybe remedy isn't the right word. The antidote in question is a lethal poison. This particular snake bite kit includes a box of strychnine, along with a faded page of instructions, and a dainty syringe nestled in a sumptuously ornamental black leather case. It looks more like a glamorous accessory than a tool for medical emergencies. This syringe is beautifully placed on a rich purple velvet lining of the leather container. There it looks quite regal. But it's not just the kit's ornamental features that draw me to it. I'm also intrigued by how well used it looks, how its previous owner seems to have depended on something so poisonous over and over again. You can see a bit of tape on the instructions. You can see a few stains which I think probably are there from usage, bringing the instructions out in a hurry and then putting them back in the box, ready for the next uh, moment of action when a, a snake bite emergency emerges again. I notice the strychnine is in a red box that says poison in bold capital letters. So if doctors knew strychnine was poisonous enough to cause fatal overdoses, then why did they prescribe it? Well, it goes back to the theory of the era. The theory then was, in fact, that it took a poison to knock out a poison. So in delivering the strychnine, it was to knock out the snake bite venom. And, of course, it worked for some who had constitutions of oxes, and it didn't work for others who would have died more quickly because of this. I still wondered how people ended up putting faith in such a deadly treatment. To understand, I tried to see things from a 19th century perspective. I wanted to know how the fears and blind spots of Australian colonists turned something so lethal into a beacon of medical modernity. It's hard to relate to a patient willingly ingesting strychnine today, but one thing I can relate to is being terrified of snake bites. 
colonists were so fixated on venomous creatures that any cure would have provided solace, even one that came with a poison warning. There was a great morbid fascination with snake bite cases and the outcomes. That's Peter Hobbins. He's a medical historian. People also say he has a morbid fascination with snake bites. In this case, the history of them. According to Peter, strychnine kits were surprisingly popular. You could buy them at chemist shops uh, through mail order, and very uh, large numbers of colonists carried them with them whenever they were out in the bush. And I've certainly read accounts by people arriving in the colony saying one of the first things they bought when they arrived in Australia was one of these strychnine snake bite kits, just because they were terrified of snake bite. The kit's instructions were written by Augustus Mueller. He was a rural doctor based in the Victorian town of Yakinanda. His first human test subject for the strychnine treatment was a 15-year-old boy in a snakebite-induced stupor. After injecting him with two vials of strychnine, Mueller says the boy came too and was well enough to enjoy a meal with the doctor later that evening. The following morning, the boy was dead. Mueller later wrote that the victim would have survived if he'd only injected more strychnine. After some less tragic human experiments, Mueller deemed his cure a success. Soon, colonists across Australia were filling their vials with the poisonous cure. But as strychnine's popularity grew, so did the rate of overdoses. Here's medical historian Peter Hobbins again. There was no known remedy. Once somebody had taken too much strychnine, there was really no way to counteract it. Strychnine was well known to have what we call a narrow therapeutic window. In other words, the difference between a dose that might stimulate you or make you feel a little bit better and the dose that can kill you is quite narrow. So if you get it wrong you know about it very quickly, and the patient goes into a series of convulsions and spasms and dies. It's perhaps unsurprising that by the early 20th century, the poison had fallen out of favour. I also learned that strychnine wasn't the only hazardous thing about the kit. It turns out there's also a reason why they don't line syringe cases with velvet anymore. Here's Jackie Healy again. Now, when we look at the beautiful velvet container holding the syringe so gently and so carefully, we ask the question, why do we not do that today? Why do we not have syringes and containers like that? And the answer is that we know more today about germ theory. We know that, in fact, the velvet is hard to wash and to clean. Prior to that, you used materials like ivory, uh, velvet, leather, and this also related to the status of doctors, and in fact, they could charge high fees, and it was quite a lucrative profession to be part of. So it was also a sign of status, having leather, velvet, ivory. But when germ theory was acknowledged, you get this change to materials that are easier to clean, materials that are more utilitarian. At least when the strychnine didn't work, it could still fulfill its function as a luxurious status object. These velvet-lined strychnine kits weren't the only sketchy snake bite cures available at the time. Electrocution was also used, but the most popular treatment was drinking copious amounts of brandy. Many colonists used to keep a couple of bottles of brandy at home for, as they called it, medicinal purposes. But there was one intervention that did stand the test of time. Most colonists just didn't know about it. Jackie Healy again. In Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, there have been long-standing practices in relation to the treatment of snake bite. 
There is a white settler diary entry that relates to the treatment of snake bite in Victoria, and that was in fact keeping the patient still and applying a piece of possum skin to where the bite had happened to help raise the poison to the surface. It was heated uh, possum skin. This sort of reflected a, a very important knowledge of keeping the patient or the victim of the snake bite still so that would reduce the poison going through the body. And in many instances, these various treatments by different Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities were very effective. I was surprised to learn that staying put after a snake bite is still advised by medical professionals today. All the contemporary first aid advice urges victims to stay still and wrap a bandage around the injured limb. That way, the snake venom is less likely to infiltrate the bloodstream before help arrives. The most important thing is the victim should remain calm, relaxed and fearless. Reassure the victim to keep calm and still. And most importantly, stay calm and move as little as possible. But 19th century colonists didn't know this. In fact, sometimes they would do the exact opposite. Peter Hobbins tells me about a Victorian man called Charles Brown who was bitten by a snake in 1868 and began falling into a coma. The two doctors who were called to the scene tried to help, but they probably made things a lot worse. So these two doctors, both respected suburban practitioners, applied the standard medical treatment for snake bite, in their eyes anyway. So they marched him up and down. They basically dragged him around trying to get him through this coma crisis. And they also tried to slap him around a little bit as well, basically to try and keep him awake. None of these interventions today would be seen to be helping Paul Charles Brown. When none of this worked, they called a third doctor who administered an experimental treatment similar to strychnine injections. He took out a mixture of ammonia and water, drew it up into a syringe, and injected it directly into Charles Brown's veins. At first I was shocked that people believed in such crazy treatments, but it turns out there was a compelling reason why they thought ammonia and strychnine were working. In small doses, there were stimulants that seemed to resurrect patients from the verge of a coma. But they were also venturing into the unknown. They were also taking risks in order to try something that might work so that they could share that with their colleagues to benefit their patients. The twitching caused by strychnine was actually seen as a welcome sign that it was keeping you awake. The downside was that twitches could turn into convulsions during an overdose. If you didn't start experiencing any effects, usually a twitching, then it meant that you hadn't injected enough. So you'd inject another dose. So it felt like it was rational, it was scientific, it was measured, it felt modern and scientific, it was easy to use, it was robust, and you could feel a great sense of confidence that in a crisis you could rely on it. So all of that sounds eminently reasonable. I think if I had lived in the 1890s and was worried about snake bite, I'm sure I would have been convinced by all of that evidence too. If I was bitten by a snake in the 1890s, I probably would have found all of this reassuring too. Even if just laying still, literally doing nothing at all, may have actually been the better option. It's bleak to realize that this is just one of many indigenous treatments that went unacknowledged. The medicinal properties of tea tree oil, eucalyptus leaves, and the emu bush were also ignored for ages. If colonists had more respect for this knowledge, it could have saved lives. 
This little kit might look like medicine, but in reality, it posed further risk to human health. Its very presence speaks of hidden histories, evidence of a past where form trumped function, and the cost of ignoring indigenous knowledge was paid in human lives. That story was made by Thomas Phillips and Zhao Zhu. Next week on Uncurated, 100 Women's Faces and the fight for equality in Australian museums and galleries. Uncurated is made on the land of the Rundry people by graduate students at the Centre for Advancing Journalism. Our producer is Nell Gerards and sound design is by Clancy Barlin and Thomas Phillips. Our theme tune is by Ben Salter as part of the Living Instruments Project And special thanks, as always, to our executive producers, Rachel Fountain and Louisa Lim. Thanks also to Ryan Johnson, Ryan Jeffries, and everyone in the Museums and Collections Department. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Angus Thompson. See you next time. Listener.